This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Sensenik comes out with some new ground-adjustable propellers. And the FAA pumps the brakes on eVTOLs. Gulfstream pilots now have some of the same limitations as Cessnas. There's new owners for helicopter company Instrum. And we're going to talk a bit about the Hero Pilot and air traffic controller in West Palm Beach. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, it's going to be two, although. I will say Nicholas doesn't talk very much, but this is Frank and Nicholas Nierhoff. These are two guys I know well. They did my gyroplane training. One of the factors, one of the things they they use in their training is something they call katas, which are these essentially flows. They're almost like like an aerobatic sequence. You know, you see like aerobatic pilots stand on the ground and walk around in circles and do their aerobatic sequence. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It, you gotta kind of you gotta think about it and then do it. Yep, and it's a whole flow. So they've done the same thing with with training, with primary training, and. I just had a really great experience with that process. It's something I've never done before. So we talked to them. It's under a nice light rain in a hangar, so you'll hear that in the background of the interview, but um, okay. that's coming up later. And, and uh, you, you were telling me offline that it's a little bit like karate or yeah. some of the Asian martial arts, in, yes. and you center yourself, and you go you know, step by step, Yeah. and they have a, a definite way of doing this that really gets a message across, makes it easier for pilots. Yeah, yeah. They, I think they got the idea from karate. That's exactly right. So it's, it's a cool thing that I think everybody could institute in training. So we'll talk a bit about it. Sounds good. Hey, I want to give a quick shout out to podcast listener David D., for helping us get the record straight on Gammy's G100UL Fuel. We want to thank David and other podcast listeners for listening. And, you know, if you ever have thoughts you want to send to us, don't forget, do that. Ian and I are always welcome to hear what you have to say or read what you have to say. Now, listen, uh, we have an upcoming interview with George Brawley, who is behind the G100 Unleaded initiative that they've developed. And I was out there at the GAMI headquarters, and it's quite impressive. The engine test bed is impressive, and we'll hear a lot more about that, but we wanted to also make it clear that Ian and I, first of all, we're for any fuel that works with all of GA. And and David D. wanted to make the point that the, the GAMI G100 unleaded is fungible. Now, what is fungible? Now, I'm probably mispronouncing it. It could be fungible. But but what it what it means is that you can mix this fuel with 
with other fuel, with regular Avgas. And that is a big point that George Brawley mentioned, and he told me about that when I saw him here at uh, Eagle Fuel Initiative in D.C. So it works in all of these engines that it's been approved for so far, and they have tested it in larger engines. That's what the test bed is all about down in Ada, Oklahoma. So we'll hear more about that. But I wanted to thank David D. for listening, for pointing that out, and also just reiterate that, you know, we do have that 100 unleaded page at AOPA, aopa.org slash 100UL, where you can find out all about this and other fuel initiatives. Yeah, very good point. And so you can write in to, we have an email box Normally, it's a solicit questions for Ask the ANPs, but uh, we will certainly respond to emails there. It's podcasts at aopia.org, or you can reach us at our direct emails, david.toolis at aopia.org or ian.twombly at aopia.org. And yeah, great point. I'd love to hear from anybody who has any thoughts about stuff we talk about or questions or anything else. So David, news. You know, we I should say, when we go through this stuff before we record the show, it's it's been interesting the past couple of months because there's not been a ton of big news. No, it's been light. And I'm told it's it's because I guess of supply chain problems. This this was an issue at Sun and Fun. People just weren't bringing product because they don't have a lot of new stuff to sell because they're spending all their engineering time working on how to overcome these supply chain problems. So how to how to get the glue for the carbon fiber for the hard cell prop, which we talked about a couple months ago. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So speaking of props, speaking of them, let's talk about a prop. Yeah, that's right. Sensenik, who's which has been around since 1932, believe it or not. Oh yeah, has come out with a new series of ground adjustable props. They're known, of course, mostly for wood props, but they do other stuff, including now carbon fiber, and. I got to say, my favorite part about this whole story is just the photo. It's just a really sweet looking piece it's a of beautiful, equipment. I it love is it. a beautiful carbon beautiful. fiber prop. Yeah. I had a Cincinnati prop on my air coop that I used to fly back in the day. And I used to also go to a Cincinnati dealer um, in Gainesville, Georgia for a Hartzell prop, which was the Eddie Kern inspection. But let's talk about the Cincinnati. This is interesting, Ian. I think that this could be good news for folks who have a lot of models. You know, the props are going to range in size from 72 to 82 inches in diameter, and it allows for installations on a variety of models. There is uh, there are current STCs available. There's even one for an 82-inch diameter prop, ground adjustable for a PA18150 model with the with the 0360 inches. So that's the Super Cub, and that'll get if you've got those big tundra tires and you've got the ground clearance, that'll get you in and out of uh, some pretty tight situations on that Super Cub. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing to note, of course, is that carbon fiber is usually lighter than aluminum props. Much lighter. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And in their case, the ground adjustable, not fully constant speed, of course, but they are up to 50 pounds lighter than traditional props, which is really impressive. That gives you a little bit more useful load, but then you also have to be careful and balance that out with the CG of your airplane. So it, it could be a win-win situation, or it could be a win-dash question mark. You just have to check yeah, it right. out for your <laughs> for right. your particular aircraft. But that does at least yeah. give you the option, and you know, lighter weight, ground adjustable. So if you know, it's, say say you know, Ian, that it's you know a day that you really need a climb prop, so you could ground you know on the ground adjust it for climbing. And you'll know you'll get a little bit less cruise, but maybe that's the day you want to climb. With consequently, maybe you want to go somewhere and go, you know, go places so that you can adjust it for a different pitch for a little bit better cruise performance. Very cool concept. 
It is. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Hey, moving on. Speaking of uh, cool concepts, new technology, that sort of thing, eVTOLs. We've talked a lot about some of the limitations they're going to face, not just technology speaking, but regulatory. And something that came out just a couple weeks ago, the FAA, about a week ago now, put out a statement talking about one of these limitations, which is going to be pilot training, I think something we've mentioned. So maybe not moving on, maybe slowing down, putting the brakes on some of the eVTOL situations. Yeah. So a report was published May 9th in the Air Current. And basically what the, you know, one of the questions is what certification are pilots going to need to fly one of these, right? Are they airplanes? Are they helicopter? Yeah. Do you need rotorcraft uh, rating, powered lift category? Like what, what do you need? Now you're set because you've got that rotorcraft, yeah. right? But I don't have powered lift, okay. which is so, you know, there really are very, very few powered lift. We're talking about what tilt rotors, basically? Yeah, that would be like the the, the Osprey kind of like a, a military aircraft, sure. So, essentially, when questioned about this, the FAA said, "Uh, we don't know. We're working on it. We'll get back to you," is what they told Jim Moore. Yeah, we'll get <laughs> back okay, to Jim you. Moore. That's right. We'll, we'll we'll get back to you when we figure this one out. Yeah, and you know what? I totally understand because from the FAA's perspective, I mean. I should say, I understand and I don't. From the FAA's perspective, they, the technology is not really out there yet in the sense of it's not, it's not totally feasible. So they don't know, right? And it's all about aircraft control. Right. So, exactly. And you don't know how the aircraft is going to respond to a pilot's input. So you need to be able to train for that. And before you're able to get these eVTOLs in the air, we got to know how, the worst case scenario, we need to know how to control them in an emergency situation. So, you know, what kind of experience do you need? What kind of training do you need? What kind of simulations do you need to go through ahead of time? So I think this is actually a smart move to, to, to stand back and look at it from the 10,000-foot view and say, wait a minute, we've got to get some infrastructure in place. And that's the one thing that I've been harping on ever since we started talking about eVTOLs, which is the infrastructure, not just how to fly them and the ratings, but what type of airspace are we looking at? At what range? How high do they go? How do we play nice with the, you know, with other general aviation aircraft and with drones and delivery drones? Yeah, it's um, there's a good quote in the story about Richard Abelafia, who runs the Teal Group and you know, sort of the perpetual quotable guy from these sort of new tech situations. And he says it's not welcome news for the theoretically emerging new sector, <laughs> but then sort of tongue in cheek, he's like. But then again, I was uncertain about how they would overcome existing 30-minute reserve requirements anyway. So that's a really interesting standpoint. Yeah. And that's a really interesting fact because, you know, with the electric technology, I mean, how do you decide when there's only 30 minutes left? I would think it would depend on how much you're how much weight you're pulling, how much time you're in the air. Are your lights on or not? How much radio <laughs> contact are you making? Are your making? lights on? Yeah, exactly. When you turn this on, do you lose two minutes of, yeah, are you losing reserve and everything else? Yeah. So lots of, uh, lots of questions. And so I guess his, his larger point being we've got, a, we've got a lot of things to work out here. So Speaking of a lot of things to work out, Gulfstream Aerospace has to work out some things right now, too, with their G500 and G600s. Yeah, not welcome news for Gulfstream. This is something that we didn't pay a lot of attention to to when it first came out and that was an ad because of a hard landing of a i don't remember if it was a g5 or 600 originally but now a second incident has happened that affects now all of the g500 and g600s and it is 
oh, it is a whopper of an AD. It puts pretty serious limitations on the airplane. Yeah, and the the point to make with uh, with this story is that the Gulfstream G500, G600, and and ho- hopefully soon the G700. These are transcontinental aircraft that are going places for people who need to get places. And it, the problem is that with the, the hard landings, it looks like it was an issue in the landing flare where, where some software might have prevented the pilot authority you know, dur- during final approach and during um, the round out and touchdown. And so this, if it's a software issue, it's, it sort of harkens back to that 737 MAX kind of question as you're overriding the pilot's ability to fly the airplane. And I think there's going to be more coming out about this. But, Ian, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's like, you know, every pilot's dig at Airbus and all the fly-by-wire systems when you take the pilot out of the loop there. So I guess Gulfstream has created, so through the flight control computer, an angle of attack limiter. And in certain situations, gusty conditions, unstable approaches, that sort of thing, the FAA determined, or maybe Gulfstream with the FAA determined, I don't know, that basically the, the limiter, the flight control computer, took over and limited pilot control at kind of the wrong time. Essentially what happened is the pilots had pulled back on the stick or on the yoke and the limiter prevented the resulting control surface from from essentially allowing the aircraft to pitch up such that the it, it resulted in a hard landing. It slammed onto the runway, resulting in a hard landing, and it and it's happened twice. So it over it overrode the pilots. Uh, the the software overrode the pilots' input in this case. Desired input, yeah, exactly. So what has happened as a result is pretty significant. In that the <laughs> the FAA through this AD has now limited the airplane to 15 total knots of wind speed, including a five-knot gust max. Well, let's think about that five-knot gust max, and I just want to bring a couple of things up. This is out of the AOPA's database on aircraft. Uh, the Cessna Skylane RG has an 18-knot max there, and we're talking about a demonstrated crosswind, not total wind, but demonstrated crosswind of 18 knots, which, that, which is pretty good. Beach Sierra, 17 knots. The V-35 Beach Line, 17 knots. And our venerable Cessna 172, 15 knots of crosswind component, not total component. Total component would be more. And so we are looking at a 30 40 $50 million jet that has less landing capability than our GA aircraft. Yeah, even an R-22, which has pretty low wind limits in terms of how aircraft go, even it's higher than that. I don't, gosh, I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't remember. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's certainly higher than 50 knots. And yeah, five knot gust. I mean, think about that. So you, to your point about these things are transcontinental. You take off from Teterboro, okay, so the wind's within limits. You're flying to LA. Like, what are the chances that you can plan enough in advance that you're going to be no able to chance. meet that limitation. Yeah, I mean... It, I don't think you can because I think that, you're first of all, you're going through three or four different weather systems, yeah. uh, you know, uh, across the USA. And what if you're stopping to pick up other passengers, say, in Omaha yeah. or somewhere? Yeah. Are you trying to fly it halfway across the world and you need to land for fuel somewhere? I mean... Yeah, what if... Yeah, what, Ian, what if you do need to land for fuel and then you're not able to meet that component, you know, that, that total wind component? 
that would be problematic. What would you do? You could turn around and go back to, would probably have enough range to go back to where you started uh, at Teterboro. But um, this is a real problem, I think, for folks, uh, for businesses and folks who have these type aircraft. So uh, I think there's a lot more to be said. Yeah. So they are working on fixes. Of course, they're working on software fixes and other changes. But for the meantime, I would assume that most of that fleet's going to be effectively grounded, like we talked about. So yeah, that, that's pretty significant. And we'll be right back. David, something that's no longer grounded, Enstrom. They're back. Yeah, this is great news. Yeah. Ian, you wrote a story about this a couple of months ago, and uh, Nikki Britton followed up just recently that uh, Chuck Surek, founder of Surek Enterprises, announced that he purchased the Enstrom hel- helicopter up in Michigan. And this is great news because Enstrom has been around for a pretty darn long time. And they were in the middle of some reorganizations. And we really are, we're fanboys of the Enstrom, I want to say. Yes. So yeah. this is great news for folks who have them, for businesses who use them. And it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. This is, I think, a great, great result for Enstrom because Surak, I guess, I, I, I hadn't known this previously, but was the founder of Sweetwater Sound. You probably know, you're a... You're a, what, a bass player? You'd know Sweetwater Sound, right? Yeah, man. I'm, they're great. They're a great group. Very good customer service. Seriously. Yep. yep. So Sirak was a business person first and later became a pilot, bought an Enstrom. So this is a guy who has a passion for aviation, but a business background. I think that's really important. So has a little bit, has sort of dipped his toe into the aviation business water before, but this is the first, you know, sort of big investment, I think. So this this is all great. This is somebody who's passionate about the aircraft, passionate about business. And so they're they're back up and going already. And this is, I think, a win-win for everybody. I'm glad to hear it. And uh, we got, you know, there's more to come from them. And hopefully they'll have some new models coming out as well. But, uh, yeah, that's great. Sweetwater, they're excellent music retailers. And, and in fact, Zurich has had a lot of experience in the helicopter business and aviation in general. Mm-hmm. He also owns an, an aviation insurance broker. So a lot of history in the aviation world can, uh, can only be good news for us folks. Yep, absolutely. So congrats to those guys. All right, David, finishing up today, want to talk about the caravan passenger and air traffic controllers. This is a phenomenal story. It made headlines all over the world. And pilots, of course, have been talking about it ever since. And now he's been on the Today Show giving his side of the story. But yeah, basically, this guy, Darren Harrison, no flying experience whatsoever on a flight from the Bahamas to Florida in a caravan. Pilot becomes incapacitated. And this guy lands the airplane for, I mean, from what we can tell, pretty much perfectly zero experience phenomenal story it is and you know anytime you have a story that starts with florida man yeah, you right. know it's got to be a good story <laughs> that's right so, this one has a happy ending though yeah it, it is uh, so darren harrison was a passenger on this caravan coming back from a fishing trip down in uh, the islands and the pilot became incapacitated. And, and this is a water cooler topic. People are really interested in this. A lot of folks are um, wondering why, you know, why or how could someone with conceivably not much aviation experience land a caravan? That's one thing. But, you know, kudos to the air traffic controllers who were intimately involved with this. And Ian, I expect we're going to see some ATC awards centered around this when the time comes. Yep. But an ATC air traffic controller, who's also a CFI, Robert Morgan of Palm Beach Tower, really was cool, calm, and collect. Went to the internet, Googled a photo of the 208 uh, Caravan's instrument panel, and started talking to 
Harrison about how to maneuver the airplane and how to get lined up for a runway landing, which was, as we said, safe and successful, I would say. Having landed off airport myself, um, you know, not intending to land off airport. I got to tell you that uh, when the time is time is up and you're looking to land you best know what you're doing and if you don't know how to fly an airplane having a controller in your ear who's also a cfi is the next best thing yeah so i guess what happened is the pilot became incapacitated so the airplane and and presumably slumped over the yoke airplane started into a dive so he was able to pull the pilot off pull out of the dive interestingly i you know want to just real quick the air safety institute used to have of course this pinch hitter course and I'm told, I never took it, but I'm told the way, the first thing they would do is, um, because a lot of spouses at the time took the program, they would say to the spouse, you throw your the strap of your purse over the pilot's shoulder or neck or whatever and pull back. And that would sort of pull him off of the yoke, which is, yeah, really interesting. But anyway, so Harrison was able to do this and then regain control of the airplane. I will say there are some comments on AvWeb that I found really interesting because they were doubting Harrison's lack of flight training and you know they do call they called the 150 the landomatic they said it was you know easy to land and we all know cessnas are easy to fly right they practically if you if you as a flight instructor i can say when you see a student sort of just calm down and chill out and take those two little fingers on the control the thing really is very very stable so assuming he can keep his wits about him which he did they are pretty stable. So yeah, I just think it's phenomenal. He, he even seemed to almost make the center line. So just a, a great story with a happy ending. It is, it is. And kudos to, to the ATC folks, kudos to Darren Harrison. And the, the medical emergency was a real deal. The pilot needed surgery for an aortic dissection, Whew. which is a life-threatening injury. He came out of it okay. And I'm hoping that he can at some point regain his medical because that would yeah. be the next question that, that comes to mind. But certainly folks are talking about that and it's a great outcome to something that could have been a lot more significant. Yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. Not only did he save his life and the passengers' lives, he saved the pilot's life there because, yeah, those are that's an emergency situation. Yeah, because as soon as they landed, it was uh, it was off to the races for the paramedics. And, and that was something that's a real key thing. Yeah, that's right. So actually, David, speaking of flight training, yeah, the Nierhoffs, this is one of the cores of their business, teaching people to fly gyroplanes. They also do some aerial observation with gyroplanes and some fire spotting and other things. But one of the key tenets of their training are these katas, where you go through this flow after you've learned the basics. And I was a believer. I think it's a, it's a great system, and I'd love to use it someday with a student in an airplane because I think it works great. And so they're going to tell us all about it. So I wanted to ask you about the, the katas, these katas that you guys have developed. Yep. I think of them as like a, a training regiment. So where did the idea come from and, and why do you use them? Well, we call them katas, which comes from Japanese. The katas are martial arts, come from the martial arts, mainly from karate in this case. In Korean, it would be pumse, hmm. the same. They are kind of uh, choreographies of, uh, of movements that you do usually in martial arts. So punches, blocks, kicks and stuff hmm. that you combine in a sequence, like in a choreography, okay. to keep on repeating them and repeating them and repeating them until they get automatic. Hmm. 
So uh, in karate you train it like if you get into the fight uh, situation that you are able to apply all these techniques that you use in the kata by repeating them over and over again without thinking about them. And is it a predictable sequence in, in martial arts? So is it, you know when you go into the gym that day that it's like you're gonna do these maneuvers in, in this exactly. order? Exactly, in martial arts and karate, it's in the different styles of karate, it's uh, sequences which have been developed in 200 years ago. Hmm. So the techniques have, have stayed the same, so they are very predictable. The important thing is not the sequence itself, the important is that every movement that you do, the technique is, uh, is, is important, that you do it in the right technique, in the right speed, and that you combine several movements which is, which is other. Because if you only like in martial arts, let's say if you only, only train one punch, you will be able to do this punch automatically, but you will not be able to apply it after a block. So that's why these katas really train you to get kind of uh, in, a, in an automatic mode doing doing the movements. Okay. The same idea is uh, what we have behind flying. The idea is actually that when you learn to fly, takeoff, landing, turns, descents, climbs, these are all like techniques, but in the real life situation you have to be able to apply these techniques instant, instantly without being in the best case, without having to concentrate on them. Mm -hmm. So in order to come to this point, it has been proven in martial arts that it is a very, very good idea to do these katas and sequences. You have it in gymnastics as well. Mm. By the way, you have sequences that you train. Yeah. And um, so that when uh, you have to apply one technique, let's say your radar controller tells you, okay, climb to 1,000 feet, 360 to the right, that you're able to do a climbing 360 to the right, climbing to 1,000 feet and level at the right altitude without having to concentrate on it, because in a real-life situation there might be radio, there might be traffic advisors, so you have to, radio frequency changes, so mm -hmm. if you have to concentrate on one thing, you're not able to do the other one. Mm. So the optimization of these techniques is uh, one of the goals of, of, of flying katas. So it's building the muscle memory, mm -hmm. so that you can have that without having to even, well like you said, to even think about it, so that it frees you up to do that higher order thinking that exactly. you need to for flying. The idea is to, to, that your brain and your, your conscious gets, gets free and your intention gets free to take care of other things while mm. you're doing the right movement. I was really interested in how you applied them during training because typically a training syllabus will say, okay, on lesson one we're going to do turns and climbs and descents. And lesson two says we're going to add steep turns. And lesson three says slow flight. The first kata, let's say, which is air work, is all of these things but together and so that the lesson becomes, we're going to do the kata. Mm -hmm. And then this next lesson is, we're going to do the kata. So it's about really refining these things almost from the beginning. So yes. you're introducing all of it from the beginning. We, we start usually in the first two, three hours, we, we start training the, the techniques, the same we do in martial arts. So mm -hmm. first we, we, we train, okay, fly, fly uh, straight and level. If you're able to do turns and climbs and descents, when you have the basic techniques of, of abilities of, of, of knowing how the aircraft reacts on your controls, that's mm -hmm. when we start the cartas. And then we uh, we start the cartas in very very early stage, as you saw it. So you always train all the techniques, yeah. and you train as one to apply one after another, and not repeating one and being completely concentrated on one technique and then yes. oh how nice he can do his steep turns but do a steep turn and then a descent and the descent doesn't work anymore. So the idea is actually really to that, that you get out of this concentration mode in automatic mode in, in uh, maneuvering the plane. Yeah. 
because flying is like maneuvering the plane, it's a small part of flying. The bigger part is actually having your attention where it needs to be on traffic, navigation, weather systems yeah. and whatever. Yeah, I was, you know, at the beginning, I, I have to admit, my ego took over a little bit and I thought, well, I know how to turn and climb and descend, but there is something really just, I don't know, it's just something really elegant about being able to do it over and over and over and to, then you can really focus on refining it every lesson yeah. so that whether you're starting or, or more advanced, you can really push yourself to get better every single time because you have this known standard that you're working against every single lesson. Exactly. And as, as it is, like if you do a climbing turn, for example, the efficiency of this climbing turn uh, will improve over the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it might, in a, if you're in a negative, small negative rotor or in bad weather condition, this efficiency might be necessary to survive a, a, a dangerous situation, for mm -hmm. example. And on the on one hand, on the other hand, uh, the Katas have as well uh, the idea that we uh, want to give a tool to our students that they can keep on training after they get their license. One uh, experience that we had with students uh, here from the Air Club, they did their license, they did the training. We didn't fly with Katas that time, uh, they knew everything, and then they flew. And they are nice people and, and conscious about uh, their limits as well. So they come back every half a year to make a check with us. And uh, we found out that they stopped training certain techniques. So uh, they, they, certain techniques, like the hover, for example, they, they stopped training it, but they didn't know how to do it anymore. And that's what observing how people train themselves when they don't do only sightseeing flights is they mainly do touch and goes, some yeah. emergencies, and that's it. Yeah. So they, they are losing ability of flying. So the idea was with the kata, so that people have a tool that they say, okay, once a week I do the kata, and I always train all the techniques that I really no need to pass the license test again and yeah. to get better and safer every week that I'm flying mm. and not getting less good yeah. after a while. So uh, with the katas that we develop, you have kind of a, a, a toolkit and if you keep on doing them regularly, we will never forget a single technique that you need for flying the aircraft safe. Mm. We already started to do competitions in it because we can do the katas as well with a GPS track on ground so you sure. see if your circuits are okay, your altitudes are okay and everything. Yeah. And you can even do kata competitions with it which is, and, yeah. and, and so you fly in the same weather conditions, several people one after another and then you compare and who did win, paste the beer. So, <laughs> so there's a, I think there's a feeling in aviation that, well, there's always a pendulum, I think, in training. It goes from training hard skills and focusing on skills to more focusing on judgment and a big thing in the states is of course scenario-based training where you're putting these maneuvers more in the real world application and less on the focus of the actual skill yeah. whereas the katas i think swing obviously back towards drilling the the core skill so do you think there's a risk of by flying the katas all the time that it takes it away from the real world scenario and makes you too dependent on just skill flying? If you if you would only train katas, yes. But for me, the katas are like kind of the base of the real scenario skills that I need. That when I need to, to focus my attention on different things than the, the core skills, how we call it, uh, that's the moment where I need to have these core skills completely out of my life. For example, we are, we are flying commercially and in uh, observation for the firefighters and, and, uh, and environmental industry here. Mm -hmm. We need to apply a lot of things around the flying. So we have to program cameras, GPS, while we are flying single-handed. So yeah. what we are doing right, as, as well as we fly the kata and 
while we fly the kata, that's something when you're really advanced and can also fly it pretty automatically, we change the programmation of the GPS and we still have to stay in limits with our speed, with our altitudes, with the, with the turns that we are doing. Mm -hmm. So this is something where you start kind of entering real life skills into the kata because if you're able to fly all these techniques one after another while you've changed frequencies, programs on the GPS and whatever, then you have proven that you really mastered the score skills. All right, David, so I know it sounds can sound a little boring as a as an experienced pilot to go up and do just climbs and turns and descents, but I tell you it's worth it's worth the effort. I think putting it together piece by piece like that, Ian, is the way to go. And to get proficient at one aspect and then move on to the next certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I know it worked for you because you got your, your gyro rating. So yeah, yeah, right. There's proof in the pudding <laughs> right. on that. And I'm thank you, yeah. thank you very much for tracking the Nierhoffs down. That really appreciate that. And their insight is really excellent. Hearing a little bit more about that in the Katas. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.